Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is well. It is uh, wonderful to see all of you here. To see the Lord's house full it is a great joy to all of our hearts. Uh, again, let me um, reiterate. Uh, we hope everybody will be able to stay. Um, there's a lot of crockpots back there, so I'm prepared, though, to just take a spoonful out of each. But uh, we look forward to continuing our fellowship through the day. <clears throat> All right, Second Kings uh, chapter twenty-two, please. Second <clears throat> Kings twenty-two. We'll continue our look at. <clears throat> pardon me. The revival slash reformation that uh, King Josiah put into action uh, there in the land of Judah, and I'll read. The entire chapter once again, so we have the context. We began this last week and looked at the first, the first portion, and we'll pick up uh, really at verse 8 in our study today, but uh, let's read all of it so that we've got the whole picture in mind. If you're able, please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boskov. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of Yahweh, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of Yahweh, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons, let them use it for build, uh, buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and uh, Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying go inquire of Yahweh for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, 
Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So last week we began this little break in our study of the life of David to address the whole issue of revival, since that is something that is frontline, front-page news uh, these days. Uh, lots of interest in revival, though it's been interesting that since uh, the administration at Asbury University or Asbury College uh, turned the revival off uh, about a week or so ago, uh, it's been crickets on in the media. Have you noticed that? It's like, oh, this, I'm not sure, maybe the, the interest was uh, only about seeing, you know, what articles they could sell. Um, but in any case, uh, there's still a lot of interest in revival. So it seemed like a good time to think a little bit about what the Word of God has to say about revival and how we are to view claims of revival when we hear them. Because certainly, if you followed any of this at all, whether on the, in the media in general or on social media, Oh, people are all over the map about whether this is of God, whether it's of Satan, whether, you know, somewhere in between, and maybe it started off well, but who I'm not so sure about now. Um, all of those kinds of things. And a lot of it, on both sides of the question, at least in the stuff that I read, seemed to be more concerned about thing, criteria such as look how many people were involved, look how, many, how long it lasted, and that kind of stuff. Which has nothing to do, really, um, except in an accidental way, with revival and what revival is. Revival can be something that is just one person being renewed in relationship to Christ. And there's revival. It can also be a, a pretty big movement. And there certainly is plenty of, uh, there are plenty of historical examples of genuine revival out there and uh, there are probably as many or more of false revivals out there as well through the years of church history. So there's a lot to study with this. And as I said last week, my intention in this little mini-series that we're doing here is not to particularly critique Asbury or any other specific thing that's going on in any other college campus right now. For one thing, I wasn't there. So I can only go by second-hand reports. Um, second-hand reports from people I 
trust, but nonetheless, secondhand reports. So uh, what I want to do is lay before us scriptural, biblical revival so that we have the tools then to stack those up against what we see and hear in our present day and go, yeah, that ticks off all the boxes. We can regard that as genuine revival. We can look over at something else and go, whew, it may tick one or two, but there's a lot of issues, a lot of holes here. Maybe we ought to reserve judgment before just declaring that God is all over this thing when it may simply be uh, one of our adversaries who is an angel of light um, deceptions. So we began looking at this this uh, period of time in Judah's history coming out of a, a time of great apostasy from God under King Manasseh. Here's King Josiah who uh, uh, was eight years old when he begins to reign. How many eight-year-olds do I have here? Can I get eight-year-olds? Yeah, a couple? Yeah. You want to be queen? Yeah. Be a pretty tough thing for an eight-year-old to come and do this. Of course, I'm, he had a lot of help um, as, as he grew. But here he comes. Um, and it, it's a constant, King Josiah is a constant amazement to me every time I read this. Because he's raised in an environment of apostasy and rebellion against God. And yet the Lord raises up this boy, king, and preserves his heart so that 18 years in, by the time he's 26 years old, he looks around and goes, this is not right. Something has to be done. Who had been bending his ear? Who had been training him? Who had been been helping him understand that there truly is a God in Israel to whom he was accountable, we're not told. So if, if at the very least we can say the Lord preserved him, raised him up, and at the right time stirred him up to do the things that he needed to do to bring his people, to call the nation of Israel back to genuine worship of God. And so last time we spent our our time in verses 3 through 7, looking at the, the care that Josiah had simply for the temple, for the house of God. And I think as we, as we looked at you know, the actual things that he did, which are pretty mundane, pretty cut and dried, okay? the building was in disrepair, not surprising after the wickedness of the, king, the kings before Josiah came on the scene. Um, disrepair, all kinds of stuff in there that wasn't supposed to be in there, extra things that were uh, over and above what the Lord had commanded, all of these, including idols and so on, all of these things needed to be cleaned out, but things had to be repaired. And so, you say, well, people have been giving, had been giving money, so, but what had, it had just been kind of squirreled away, it doesn't seem like it had been put to much use at all. So, he sent folks, had them dig the money out, put it into the hands of workmen, and told them to go to it. This concern for the house of God reveals something about Josiah's heart. And that is that at least on this really a surface level, things started to turn around when he had concern for God's house. 
He had concern for the place where God had said He was placing His name. And he, he understood that what was there was a shame. It was a travesty. It was, it was a, a dishonor to God and His name because of the neglect of the building. And so, in the, uh, the upkeep there, and, and uh, just uh, it, so that it would be ready for the worship of God, Josiah um, put, uh, be- began there. And that really was the beginning of the revival. I will say this about the Asbury uh, uh, event. One of the things that I read from statements of both these statements were made both positively and and uh, and as a criticism. Um, there were some that uh, delighted in the fact that the church wasn't involved in this, and then there were others that reported bemoaning the fact that the church wasn't involved in this. So it seems pretty universal that the church wasn't involved in this at all. And in fact, there was kind of a a boasting in the fact that we don't need that, which is a huge red flag to me. Because right off the bat, if you're not concerned for the institution of the visible church and its worship, and you think you can do it on your own, I'm sorry, but that's not of God. There might be some other things there that were, but that wasn't. Um, And that's a huge red flag. Josiah begins here saying, now... Uh, we need to be concerned about the, the testimony of our God and His witness. Recognizing that a holy God who said, I'm putting my name there, what had been offended by the things that were placed in there and done in there that were contrary to His holiness. So that's where it began. Well, thankfully it doesn't stop there. Because honestly, if all we do is paint the place... Um, it can be just as dead as a tomb in here. Might look pretty, but that's not revival. It's a starting point. It's a place to get our attention, perhaps, but there's got to be more to it. And thankfully, in this account, there definitely is. So beginning at verse 8 and then running on through verse 20, we have this account of the finding of the book of the law tucked back away somewhere in some back room. You can almost you can almost picture Hilkiah digging around back there and blowing the dust off uh, of this scroll. Very possibly, um, in fact, I would say almost probable uh, that this was a Torah scroll, the first five books of Moses. It it is possible that it could simply be a copy only of Deuteronomy, but either way, um, it. Uh, Either way would serve the purpose for what it happens here. Genuine revival doesn't it doesn't stop with concern for God's witness. It it it, it it's a good place for it to begin to try to um, restore the reputation of a holy God in the world. Absolutely, but how do we do that? I mean, the Christian. Um, the so-called Christian church is filled with all kinds of examples of people coming up with their own ideas about how to glorify God, is it not? And many of those things 
have little to nothing to do with what God actually says in His Word. So Hilkiah finds this scroll, and I, I just love the subtext of this portion. I think I might have mentioned this last week for those who were here. Yeah, this, you know, we're so used to having uh, Bibles everywhere, right? Um, I've got half a dozen of them sitting in there. We've got more in the library back here. There's one behind every pew there, and many of you have them in your hands or they're on your tablets or smartphones or whatever. We're so used to them being around. Well, they didn't have that then. So to, to find a scroll, this is a monumental thing, particularly since nobody had bothered to look at a scroll for quite a while. At least nobody in power. So Hilkiah looks, Hilkiah is, he, he knows what it is. And I, put yourself in his place. Here he goes in as a person who is the high priest who should have known where this scroll was and should have been insisting that it be put front and center long before this. Perhaps we don't know why he didn't. Perhaps because he feared for his life under the former king. We don't, I don't know. It doesn't say. But he finds this thing and you have to just, I, I, can, I can imagine what is going through his mind. And it kind of would be something like this. What are we going to do now? Because he would know the import of that. And then, it's almost like it's a hot potato. He should have been the one, honestly, that took it to the king. Here's a, I, I'm glad that he didn't bury it again. At least we'd say that to his credit. But he hands it off to Shaphan, who was the king's secretary, his administrative assistant. And Shaphan reads it. Now Shaphan may, not, may or may not be expected to know what was in there. He wasn't in the priesthood or anything. But Shaphan reads it. And you can almost see Shaphan's reaction as he's going through and unrolls a little more and unrolls a little more. And Shaphan, probably this is what it sounded like. Oh, oh, oh. Particularly as he read of the curses that would come upon Israel if they did not obey their God. And to Shaphan's credit, he didn't hide it back away again. He took it to the king. But I love how he does this. He uh, begins with a report of compliance with the king's orders regarding the money. Right? That's the easy part. Hey, the job was done. It's great. Everything's good. The money's in their hands. They're going for it. Uh, and they found this book. Here's this book. And not only did Shaphan, I'm looking forward to meeting that guy someday. Not only did he say, here's the book, you read it, and then retreat. Shaphan read what he had just read. 
to Josiah. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop in that throne room. And so, when the king hears the words, verse 11, he tore his clothes. And in his grief, he, uh, he, brings, he uh, says, we need to talk to God about this. We need to talk to Yahweh about this. Because we're in trouble. And so, an interesting command. Uh, he commands Hilkiah and um, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Um, presumably, he wanted to keep Shaphan pretty close, so he sends Shaphan's... Uh, oh, no, he sent Shaphan too. So, uh, sent Ahikam uh, and Achbor and Shaphan and Asiah um, and says, go inquire of Yahweh. I don't know why he needed all of them. Uh, I Again, wondering if maybe in the context here, because of the corruption from the former administrations on the throne, that prophets were probably few and far between. Maybe they sent that many to go out and search for them. I don't know. We're not told. Uh, but anyway, it's a delegation. They, uh, they uh, hear about Huldah, the prophetess, and they go to her. She lives there in Jerusalem. And she has some interesting things to say. But Josiah, I think, from verse 13, it seems pretty obvious that he is prepared to hear whatever the Lord has to say and to hear it and receive it humbly and with appropriate fear before him. You know, we don't often think, do we, of the Old Testament, particularly the five books of Moses, as being a particularly useful revival tool. Anybody ever, is that the first thing that comes to mind? Usually if I, if, 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 if I were to say to you, tell me a, tell me a book of, of the Bible that you would use in evangelism, you would probably say, Gospel of John, which is great, obviously. Sure thing. Might pick out uh, uh, maybe some of the portions out of the Book of Romans. That's always a good thing to do, and there are great things that are there. But uh, we often forget that the Gospel of John and the Book of Romans, and in fact the entire New Testament, is grounded bedrock on the Old Testament, and particularly springing out of the first five books of Moses, where grace and salvation are mentioned quite a few times. It's not all about just um, a legalistic approach of, of uh, you fulfill the law and everything's fine. Grace of God is, 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 it permeates the first five books of Moses. And yet, so does the justice and righteousness and holiness of God. So often revival these days is about turning over, in people's general popular mind is that it's about turning over a new leaf it's about getting excited about Jesus again it's about uh, you know uh, finding uh, comfort and peace in the midst of your problems none of that is revival none of that is revival 
you remember last week we re- defined uh, revival um, coming out of Psalm 85. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Which means to renew life. Revival has to do with believers turning their back on their wickedness and renewing their commitment under their Lord. And um, it's not about just feeling excited and feeling good and putting a band-aid on your sorrows so that you can go continue on in the way that you live uh, before the revival. One of the things that, uh, if you do some study in American church history, which is uh, particularly in the revival periods, First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, really interesting stuff. They are the First Great Awakening and Second Great Great Awakening in character are very different. First Great Awakening was much more uh, doctrinally driven, and consequently, the and, and I think I'm making general statements here, but consequently, the results of that First Great Awakening in terms of of of, of genuine converts that that were added to the visible church and saw the establishment of, of God's testimony in an even greater way throughout the country, and, and, and which, of course, had a ripple effect into you know, areas of government and all those kinds of things, was much more pronounced in First Great Awakening than the second, which was much more uh, grounded upon emotionalism and decisionism, less grounding, more pietistic kinds of things. This is how we live. Uh, these are the decisions we make led by guys like Finney and, and others who, if you read Finney, by the way, on revival or his systematic theology, uh, well, systematic theology is very interesting. It is a rationalistic piece of garbage. I think the last time I read it years ago, uh, the name of Jesus is mentioned a handful of times. There's no gospel there. It's all about man being able to make a decision and intellectually agree with God. Does that sound familiar to today's evangelism? There's a reason, because American evangelicalism tended to follow Finney rather than some of the others during that time that were opposed to that. Well, Josiah is not interested in just an emotional response. He is, though he is very, there is an emotional response, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's based upon what God has said in His Word. And the criteria for the offense is not um, what man has to say, but what God has to say about who He is and what brings offense to Him. What is sin against Him? And that is what drove Josiah here. And as you go through and look at this response... Everything that Josiah is going to do, and we'll see even more of this, God willing, next week when we begin to look at chapter 23, which is, this is just all the run-up to what Josiah actually does in Israel. In 23, he gets right into it and deals with the nation as a whole. And everything that he does, he goes about doing according to what you see in the book of Deuteronomy, what you see in the first five books of Moses. I praise God that here with Josiah and just even with us as well, that he preserves his word. It could have just been, it could have been very easy 
for the wicked kings that were inhabiting the throne prior to Josiah to go in and and eradicate anything in the temple that would have anything to say against what they were doing. But God kept his word tucked away in a corner until his time to bring it out and put it to work. And he preserves his word today. As much as we look around today and see people who are willing to do Christianity um, without being bothered by the word, which of course is no real Christianity at all, um, I'm thankful that he preserves his word and that it's available to us and that his spirit continues to work and teach us what we need to know, convicting, convicting us when we need to be convicted and encouraging us when we need to be encouraged. It's clear that Josiah is looking at what, uh, uh, what he is hearing there, and he's definitely focused on uh, the curses for disobedience in that covenant text. And uh, rightly so. Where does this, how does this, what does this conviction look like? Is it just a general conviction for, well, you know, we have, I know we're not perfect. Um, that's really a, a common thing these days, and it drives me crazy to hear people talk about sin uh, using the term mistakes. You know, yeah, we make mistakes. Well, yeah, you do make mistakes, but a mistake is not necessarily a sin. Sin is sin. The mistakes, well, that makes it sound like, well, you know, didn't mean to do that. Sin is deliberate rebellion against God, transgressing His Word by actively breaking it or passively not doing what it tells us to do. And some of those things can be done in ignorance. We're still held accountable for them. But so much of what we do is deliberate. And we're sinning against God. The conviction that we have is not just, well, I just didn't, I kind of messed up. It's like, no, this conviction goes much deeper than that. And look at the things that bring conviction to Josiah here. Let's be guided by that. Beginning in verse 11, um, just this is uh, implied here as the king tears his clothes, as he hears the word of the book of the law, he is convicted, I believe, for the neglect of God's house, particularly when you put that with verse 13, um, where it says, the, the Lord's wrath, Yahweh's wrath is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed. We, haven't, we have not done what we need to be doing. This is, a, this is that sins of omission. We have not. We've neglected what we should be doing in relationship to God's house and to God himself. And then as he goes on and gets this, this message from Hilkiah's, uh, or back from Hilkiah and company who had talked to uh, Huldah, she says there in uh, verse 16, I will bring disaster uh, upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of this book. Everything that 
uh, God said he would curse his people for if they disobeyed, was going to come upon them. And surely you would see after Josiah in the subsequent history of Judah that the oppression, the slavery, the death, the loss of their land, the use of their land, all of that was what God had said would happen if they failed to obey him, if they rebelled. And he is, uh, he's broken by that. He's broken. Um, not, and you get the sense, at least I do as I read this, and perhaps you did as well. Josiah is not going to say, well, hey, no, the, you know, the judgment doesn't really matter. It, it absolutely matters. But I think Josiah is less concerned about the pain and suffering that's about to come upon them than he is about the offended, holy Yahweh. That's what really seems to break his heart. You know, if, if, in our, politi- if our political climate changes here to where churches are uh, not just mocked or um, whatever in the world, but actually um, society takes action uh, against us and deprives us of our building and so on, I would be heartbroken if uh, we could no longer worship here, that uh, we were compelled to go into the streets and alleys and wherever barns or wherever we had to, had to worship. Uh, it, it would be heartbreaking. But honestly, if it was because of our sin that God was bringing judgment upon us and depriving of this place, I would hope that I would be more heartbroken of the fact that we offended God in the first place than to be concerned about this building as nice as it is for us. And Josiah seems to be of that mind, that he is just heartbroken because He's hurt this. He and the nation have hurt the relationship with God. They have walked in rebellion against Him. So he's convicted for neglecting God's house, and that the nation has done that. And uh, the reason I kind of think that he's more uh, concerned about the things of the Lord Himself is because of verses uh, like verses like seventeen there, where it says, uh, "As the Lord speaks through Huldah to the king." Behold, because they, that is the nation, the people, have forsaken me. They've forsaken me. They've they've left my fellowship. And Josiah is grieving and convicted because uh, as a nation, they had walked away from their God. In some cases, run away. And this idea of forsaking the one who had promised them in the five books of Moses, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But they had turned their backs on him. Gone after idols. They had uh, put idols, in fact, in the very temple uh, itself. 
completely dishonoring the God who had redeemed them out of Egypt, had established them in the land, had done wonder after wonder after miracle after miracle to preserve them and keep them and establish them. But they so much wanted to be like the other nations. It began with Saul. In fact, it it began in the wilderness. That generation fell, and they should have the subsequent generation should have known. But they continually wanted to be like the nations. And the visible church all too often wants to go on to get along and blend in and and uh, do those things that the world finds acceptable all in the name of relevancy and, and just so that I can have a conversation. Instead of just saying, thus says the Lord. You don't have to be a jerk when you say, thus says the Lord. But we ought to be firm about it and unapologetic about it. He's the one whom we answer to for eternity, not a fallen world, not a compromising church. Josiah clearly was not too concerned about appearances, was he? Here he is, the king of Israel. You know, it's not something that we are, we are common in doing when we are uh, broken and convicted. We don't generally tear our clothes. Do you ever really think about why that's done? Because it's something that's pretty common in the Bible. We just read it and go, yeah, they were really upset. (laughs) Well, when you tear your clothes, um, you're basically saying, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I don't care about my image. I don't care about any, all of the, all of the trappings of the things that are around me that make everything look like it's fine. I'm peeling off those layers and I'm vulnerable, vulnerable not only before the sight of God, but indicating that I don't care what anybody else thinks. When I've offended God, I'm broken. And I must come. I remember years ago, I was doing some evangelistic work running around the Midwest with a a team of guys. And we were in a church, um, evangelical church, that's all I'll say about it, doesn't matter what brand it had over the door. But it was the kind of church that uh, liked to do altar calls and that sort of thing, which as a general rule, um, um, I find no justification for uh, it. at all in the scriptures, but be that as it may, because of the group I was with, we did them. And I just kind of grinned and bear it. Okay. But I remember this one occasion after the service, there was an altar call and I had met this particular gentleman. He was one of the deacons of that church. And he just kind of had an attitude. He was an older guy. Um, been there forever, clearly one of the pillars of that congregation. And he just kind of had this smug, satisfied attitude, which sometimes longtime believers can have. Um, We did the service and did the altar call, and 
we were, the whole church was astounded when this gentleman got up, stumbled, weeping audibly to the front of the church and um, humbling himself before God. It was the American equivalent of tearing his clothes because he recognized he had offended a holy God. He recognized he had been a hypocrite all those years. And he, he told us, he turned around and testified, I've been this and this and this and this. It wasn't graphic. It was just, I'm not, I've been pretending um, I've sinned against you. I've done these sorts of things. And, and uh, I think that man was genuinely converted that night, at least revived. Because he didn't care about what anybody else said. One of the things about altar calls, sorry, this is a little rabbit trail. If I ever do one, don't hold your breath. If I ever do one, I will not say to you, okay, bow your head and close your eyes. And anybody who wants to believe in Jesus, you know, raise your hand and I'll see you. I'm not going to make it easy on you. If you want to testify that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then stand up and be counted. If you're too afraid that what somebody might think of you, because no, I mean, they always say, now nobody's looking around, you don't need to be embarrassed. If the Spirit of God is moving on you, you don't care what anybody else thinks. End of story. You're open and exposed to the Lord with whom you have to do. It's the way it should be. So he was under conviction for forsaking that fellowship and for the act of rebellion against God's law. And this is now, we saw the acts of omission, failing to do what God had commanded them to do. This is acts of commission, sins of commission, as they are, are lifting up idols, false gods in God's place. In verse 13 and in verse 17. They've made offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger, Yahweh says. In other words, Josiah, by God's grace, was willing to look at all of their sins, not just the ones that were convenient, and to humble himself before God as a result. What's interesting also, you look at verse 19, and the things that, that uh, uh, Yahweh says to him is because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place. He goes on to say, I've heard you, and you're not going to see the disaster that I'm going to bring. Josiah was convicted, I believe, for the nation's indifference to God's judgments. You really get the impression from the prior administrations that they didn't care about God's threats of judgment. They didn't care about the curses. They were indifferent to them. I mean, you listen, this is contrasts with Josiah's response, which is, is clearly heartbroken. And you, you almost, we're not told prior to this, prior to the 18th year of Josiah, what his life was like, what he did. Did he, did he offer sacrifices to other gods? I don't know. I kind of, I want to say no, but certainly it was allowed under his administration. Things were going on. Uh, those early years, there'd be a whole lot of learning and so on. And maybe you could, 
understand why he wouldn't deal with a lot of things when he was really young. But as he got older, he started looking around and going, uh, hmm, not so sure about this. And all of his suspicions are confirmed as God's word is read. Josiah's response, verse 20, chapter 23 and verse 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and all his soul and all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. What a contrast to the nation of Israel as a whole. God's people. The ones who were His by covenant. Externally doing all the things. And the prophets you know, often said, well, you do all of these things. Your, your, face, uh, your face is towards me, but your feet are running the other way. The same nation that, that uh, Yahweh uh, condemned by saying, I hate your feasts, I hate your sacrifices because... You're actually in rebellion against me. Josiah's response is one of the complete opposite of indifference. This is what genuine conviction looks like. It's not just about, oh, I want to feel better, or I want to know Jesus better. Well, I hope we want to feel better, and I hope we want to know Jesus better. But revival of those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who have walked afar from Him, who are not walking in obedience to Him, revival begins with recognizing the offense against a holy God. And it's not just somebody else's offense, it's mine. And that I'm convicted according to God's Word. Not according to my own ideas of what things should be like. That's the criteria that we should understand convicted hearts by. His word. An offense against him. So we'll stop there. I dearly want to keep going, but it is past time. I need to quit. Next time we're going to, we've looked at kind of the, I don't want to say necessarily the negative side, but the things that, of conviction and, and, and that sort of thing. Now we're going to shift gears and look at the positive side. All right, what do we do now? Where do we go from here then in genuine revival? And that is the subject of chapter 23. And uh, God willing, we'll tackle that next Lord's Day. For now, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for the example of Josiah and the reformation and revival that he brought about in Israel because he began where he needed to begin with an offended God. And he defined that offense according to what you said, not according to his own imaginations. We thank you that you preserve your word for us. Lord, make it work on us where we have neglected you, Father. We repent 
and desire to do those things that you call upon us to do, where we have forsaken you in our minds and hearts, loving the world rather than you. Lord, let us turn our back on the things of the world and cling to you with all of our might and not rebel against you, not strive to um, uh, worship you according to our own imaginations, but according to your word, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Let that characterize the revival in our hearts. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.